Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Part 2 Chapter 4 Feng Shui Nothing in Hanoi seems to be undertaken without consulting an astrologer or spiritualist of some denomination. Incantations and rituals to elicit good luck are totally confusing to anyone who is not Vietnamese. I was no exception. Ghosts were everywhere. A neighbour was in heavy demand for his high-speed connection to the other side. He saw dead people. My landlady had her own running dialogue with various apparitions. The ones hanging around my place were cranky, she confided, and their opinions uncannily reflected hers, especially when it came to foreigners. However, even she thought the famous feng shui master I had engaged at the suggestion of a customer was a load of hooey. The feng shui master arrived early one morning with an entourage of four simpering devotees. The landlady had appeared at the same time with yet another eight-year-old electrician to fix the shop air conditioner. We settled in the bookshop. The feng shui master his neck bathed in heavy gold chains, holding court. My landlady, devotees and me, a captive audience. The electrician had unceremoniously been shoved up a ladder to poke around the air conditioner. Almost immediately, the feng shui master and the landlady launched into a verbal attack. In seconds, he had concluded that it was a very unlucky shop at the end of a tea intersection. She protested fiercely, mostly because we were still renegotiating the lease. She shrieked it was an extremely auspicious location, definitely worthy of a large rent increase. A brief pause during the landlady's bombardment allowed the master to quickly suggest his remedy for the doomed bookshop. He announced all the bad luck could be sucked outside through a gaping hole knocked through the external wall. Any other misfortune could drain into a large pit to be dug in the middle of the shop floor. Not the greatest solution for a retail space, I thought. Surely I could just hang a few mirrors? No? Impossible? Luckily, the master's devotees could start bashing holes in walls, beginning immediately for only $500. Incredulous, both the landlady and I balked at the outrageous price. I could kick my own walls in for far less. When a loud bang and blue flash shattered the tension... The forgotten eight-year-old electrician had been blown off the ladder and had hit the floor. The heart-stopping moment swung the feng shui master into action. Realising he was flogging a dead horse, he took off in a huff, out the door and over the groaning body of the shocked electrician. He was followed in quick succession and at high speed by devotees one to four. At their rear, the day's electrician dragged himself to his feet and stumbled out, collecting a clip over the ear from the landlady for his trouble. A few weeks later, a five-year lease had been finalised, and I had engaged a motley crew of builders, closed the bookshop for a couple of weeks, and readied myself for renovations. 
As usual, the landlady put the kibosh on the proceedings and, without telling me, postponed the builders for an extra week. Apparently, I hadn't taken into account the ghost that lived in the wall that was scheduled for demolition. The most auspicious day to keep the ghost happy and to start renovations was a week away, and that was that. Absolutely no way around it. A heads-up on the predilection of the resident ghosts might have been useful. However, without a choice, I grudgingly agreed and extended the renovations an extra week. To make sure that everything went according to plan, the landlady arrived a few days beforehand with fruit, a whole chicken, incense, coconuts and flowers. She and I conducted a cleansing ceremony on my roof to placate the previously unknown wall ghost. I quietly reminded her that only a couple of weeks before she had called the feng shui master a fraud and that his mumbo-jumbo was a load of bunkum. Yes, she said, waving joysticks menacingly around the yellow chicken. He was a complete phony, but this was real. Between the rubbish lady, the professional scavengers, recyclers and neighbours, most things were efficiently removed from the curbside before the weekly garbage trucks arrived. Recyclers on bicycles often broadcast their arrival from battery-powered loudspeakers, screaming at households to throw out old electrical equipment, plastic, paper, metal, cardboard or batteries, to be dangerously repurposed or miraculously repaired. Recyclers usually redirected their bundles to the hundreds of craft villages outside of Hanoi, where phenomenal volumes of household articles were ingeniously produced from both new and old materials. All over the country, a trip to the market for both delivery or pickup meant the use of a colourful and virtually indestructible shopping basket, cleverly woven from discarded, or stolen, tough plastic packing tape. Unwanted paper was collected, sorted and reinvented as lacquerware or papier-mâché toys and masks. Foreigners soon became familiar with the pottery village, churning out vast amounts of ceramic tiles, tableware and decorative pieces. Some villagers specialised in weaving amazing textiles from silk or cottons, while others created incredible basketware and sleeping mats in bold designs. The emblem of Vietnam, the conical non-hat, were woven by the thousands in the non-village outside of town. Huge lengths of bamboo spent months bundled together soaking in a river to kill cane bugs before being supplied to the bamboo villages and made into an endless variety of household furniture or tableware, or perhaps made into ladders or other construction equipment. Long spans of bamboo or rebar were precariously transported around Hanoi lashed to the side of a workhorse motorcycle. As part of the renovations, I threw out a custom-made set of laminated kitchen benches. They were new, very stylish, but emitted a putrid gas emanating directly from hell. Anything put inside absorbed the foul-smelling pong. Nothing helped. I cleaned it with bleach, vinegar. I even tried soap and water. I put charcoal inside to absorb the odour. No change. A stinking pall leaked into the bookshop whenever I opened the cupboard's doors. I received inexpert advice from various menfolk, some of whom foolishly stuck their heads inside only to exit just as fast, lurid green, eyes popping, sputtering and gasping. The dead dog market was a bed of roses compared to this. The smell was so nauseating that in defeat 
I did the only thing available and plonked it on the pavement one evening, whereby inciting a small turf war between the local recyclers as to who got to carry off the Trojan cupboard. The builder arrived with an entourage of twelve, mostly useless guys. They made short work of bashing down the wall surrounding the staircase and inserted an I-beam to prevent three storeys tumbling down on top of us. All the books, sensibly, had been packed away in boxes, as the amount of dust generated from this escapade was completely out of proportion with the space created. The kitchen was also gutted and replaced with benches that promised the dual qualities of non-pong and foreigner height. This brought the ire of the landlady. Vietnamese kitchens are usually dark and dingy and often located on the roof, either so that fumes can escape, but it's more likely that the room where women or servants work is probably a complete oversight in the building plans. Kitchen benches are always too low, even for Vietnamese people. Cooking means grandma or a servant being bent double over a gas ring, or more commonly, charcoal or briquette coals. The briquette guy was a regular sight, trudging around on his daily beat, delivering round briquettes to households from a cart attached to a coal-blackened bicycle. Most family activities, including food preparation, took place on the floor. Vietnamese homes often had ornately carved wooden seats and couches made from expensive hardwoods inlaid with mother-of-pearl. Usually without cushions, they were not for sitting, but rather for admiration. Beds usually meant woven mats on the tiles. Families generally slept together, or at least in a pile according to gender. Foreign husbands were surprised to discover that their Vietnamese wives had never slept alone, having always slumbered with a cavalcade of sisters and or cousins. Being alone even for a short time, or even wanting to be alone in Vietnam, while almost impossible to achieve, was considered yet another very, very odd foreigner behaviour. The painters and carpenters were not eight years old, but were not exactly skilled tradesmen either. Paint slopped on walls, no preparation, no fillers or cleaning. Paint went over everything, including bugs, moths, paper and other stuck detritus. My builder came highly recommended, having renovated fancy residences, but I suspect I was sold a pup. A street exists in the old quarter, where you went to collect workers early in the morning, a bunch of guys squatting on street corners clutching old-fashioned saws identifies them as carpenters. To think, only yesterday they were rice farmers. Plumbers and electricians are similarly recruited, although they don't have any tools to distinguish their trade. Vietnamese people are fearless. No one flinches whether you've asked them to build a wooden box or a nuclear reactor. There was always an overwhelming can-do attitude. Unfortunately, the results may not be remotely what you expect. It took two weeks to modify the bookshop, some of which I spent watching one of the carpenters tackle an L-shaped desk. I'd asked for it to be transformed into two smaller desks. The rounded corner segment could be cut out and fitted with wheels and used for displaying books. However, the corner module posed a level of carpentry and or quantum physics way above his pay grade. The wedged-shaped cupboard was whittled down over a series of days to achieve something akin to even proportions. The incessant whittling left the display area about the size of a dinner plate. Three casters were affixed to the bottom, which was by now even smaller than the top, and gravity took over. 
Unfazed, he compensated by nailing a length of wood horizontally from the base, with the fourth wheel attached to the end. It resembled some sort of inverted Dalek. It was not his finest hour. The rubbish lady scored another hit. Mr Fu was a perennially cheerful young guy, employed by a nearby restaurant. He was a unique asset to the local community, particularly in his services as designated rat killer. Fu would often zoom past the bookshop to dispatch a rat trapped somewhere in the warren of my neighbour's houses. I called on his expertise a number of times. Once, a giant rat shot through the open doors, briefly scanned self-help and bolted upstairs. I wasn't sure where it had gone, but managed after some trepidation to trap it in a vacant room, greatly relieved it hadn't chosen to hide in my bedroom. Fu was summoned, and he and his lump of bamboo were shoved inside. The door hastily slammed behind him. There was a lot of bashing, thumping, banging and squealing. Then all quiet. Fu politely stuck his head out and asked if I could perhaps find for him a plastic bag. Fu one, rat zero. Coincidentally, the Vietnamese word for kangaroo loosely translates as rat with pocket. The Australian beer brand Foster's was heavily promoted on TV at the time by men in kangaroo costumes tearing around on motorcycles and was considered by all my neighbours as completely hilarious. Hanoi has more than 40 lakes dotted around the city and during the wet season is regularly threatened by the swollen Red River. Precautions have been installed upstream and there's a long dike to protect the city, but the monsoonal downpours provided enough water to flood most streets, including the French Quarter where the bookshop was located. Fu and I would act as traffic wardens when the street flooded. Traffic always got diverted to our small street, as it was one of the last to remain accessible. Water everywhere overwhelmed the deep gutters, rendering them invisible. Into the night, Fu and I would use brooms in thrashing rain to poke motorcyclists into the centre of the street so they didn't get their wheels trapped in the deep gutters and the drivers tossed over the handlebars. Sometimes an eel would get flushed out in the deluge. Fu would abandon traffic safety and dive into the brown ick after it, sliding between cars, motorbikes and squealing girls as the eel desperately tried to return to the safety of the sewer. Mr Tuan was my neighbour and general go-to guy. He was married with a teenage daughter and provided an endless range of services to keep the bookshop running. He owned a motorbike as well as a cyclo. Cyclos were not as common on Hanoi streets as in the past and the number of streets where they could operate became fewer and fewer However, Tuan continued to offer a valuable service for moving people, goods and chattels around town. When I had first moved into the bookshop, Tuan had been fairly quick to inform me of the foibles of all of the other neighbours in my small street. Who was a thief? Who couldn't be trusted? Etc. Some months after our first meeting, Grandma died and the funeral procession trailed from her house around the block and onward to the temple. Tuan and all the reprobates he had warned me about were dutifully following the beer and, as is the custom, all the men were similarly dressed with white muslin sheaths over their clothes and bearing white headbands. 
From this family display, it appeared the scheming, untrustworthy hoi polloi he had warned me about were all his own relatives. Twan would also speed around town on his motorbike, locating some strange item I was trying to find for the bookshop. He'd drive me to all the hotels where I'd deliver business cards for tourists. He'd take various visitors staying at the bookshop on a mystery tour of Hanoi's back streets and to the black market, named mostly for how dark it was. It sold second-hand everything. Broken junk, cheap Chinese tools and millions of assorted grease-encrusted dreary bits and pieces jammed in a myriad of tiny alleys and lanes leading to a dingy square covered in bleak, flapping plastic and hessian. It was fantastic. Tuan collected me early one morning on his motorbike to take me to the money changer to get small bills for the day's trade. Tuan sped off and, as usual, completely ignored the traffic light that had turned red. This may have worked out OK, except some fool on another motorbike had actually stopped at the red light. Such an unusual event meant that Tuan had not realised the guy was stationary and we ploughed straight into the rear of his Honda. Tuan had swerved at the last second, leaving my right knee to receive the full impact. It was like being hit by a baseball bat. I fell off, Tuan fell off, the motorbike was dropped. I was sprawled in the road, half expecting to be run over by one of those Hanoi trucks without brakes. I scrambled to the curb for safety where I slumped, seeing stars, feeling nauseous and trying to figure out if my knee was broken. Tuan rescued his motorcycle. The other driver was unhurt, but I'd broken his rear light. Tuan was fine also. I gazed up from the gutter, still a bit spaced out, to see the heads of Tuan and a traffic cop reassuring me that, even though the accident was my fault, my legs were too long, the cop had seen everything, and it was okay. I don't know how reliable the traffic cop was as a witness, as he appeared to be completely cross-eyed. Maybe I was more dazed than I realised, but a cross-eyed guy directing traffic didn't seem that out of place in Hanoi. In fact, it may have explained traffic flow in general. A passing sans-souci cyclo loaded me in and dumped me out of the bookshop. By some good fortune, my knee wasn't broken, but unable to climb stairs... I was stuck on the ground floor for a week. Mr Twan was temporarily removed as transport specialist. Thousands of motorbikes and other vehicles clogged the city streets that for generations had been more accustomed to bicycles or cyclos. Vietnam opened up to the rest of the world during the renovation period in the 1980s to 90s and the influx of money meant a middle class was slowly rising. The ambition of most when I lived in Hanoi was at the very least to own a motorcycle, and it seemed most did. Fancy newer models replaced the sturdy Honda Cubs that had built a nation. Minsk motorcycles and their endless repairs were coveted only by expats. No one was phased by what was seen on Hanoi's busy streets. Anything and everything was loaded on the back of a motorbike. A typical sight was of a driver in flip-flops one hand grasping a huge TV or some other expensive item untied behind, the other hand revving the throttle, zigzagging unworried through traffic. Balancing a TV rather than tying it down meant that the driver would be compelled to be more cautious in a confounding example of backwards logic. Huge panes of glass, chickens, furniture, 
pigs or refrigerators would be seen all day scooting past the bookshop, perched on the back of a motorcycle. Patients from the nearby hospital would similarly be ferried to and fro, clinging to the driver and grasping an IV pole. Lacing through traffic, tubing and bag flapping, medicine dripping to a cannula taped to the back of the patient's hand. A group of motorcycle taxis parked on the corner would also chauffeur me around town and run errands for the bookshop. Better them than me to navigate the mean streets. Beautiful Vena girls raced past, long glistening black locks flowing, a cloth face mask to keep out the dust, as they effortlessly changed gears in five-inch heels. Everyone complained about the traffic in Hanoi, but incidents of road rage were rarely seen despite at that time only middling observance of the road rules and even less of the few traffic lights. Most evenings, a random old Hanoian gent, nearly always dressed in pyjamas, could be seen at the roundabout at Huan Kiem Lake, shuffling into battalions of opposing motorbikes, holding his walking stick straight out in front, like a Vietnamese Moses attempting to part a sea of Hondas, clocking a few but missing most. Road accidents were frighteningly common. Luckily, as I usually worked in my office above the shop, I reduced my risk for being involved in one. Transiting around town would more often than not mean catching a glimpse of a serious accident or sometimes a fatality, marked by a single joystick to ward off the lingering ghost. Placed perhaps for an unlucky motorcyclist who had run a red light and played chicken and lost with a gravel truck. I was told an incredulous German manufacturer had been contacted to see if his firm could increase specifications for their horns, from the assured one million beeps to something better suiting Hanoi requirements. They wore out far too early. No surprises there. Driving anything meant blasting the horn continuously because traffic is supposed to give way to anything beeping or honking from behind. Chalk up another example of confounding logic. Small motorbikes emerged from side streets into the path of speeding trucks without looking and without hesitation. Immediately after a road accident, first aid was not usually foremost on people's minds, but haggling the price for an injury or death often was. A death meant 50 million dong, 2,300 US dollars, to the family, while a serious injury meant only a measly three million if your relative was mean-spirited enough to survive. First aid might be administered as chest compressions by foot to a dying motorcyclist, as if blowing up an air mattress, while at the same time negotiating compensation. Until made compulsory, Hanoians were reluctant to wear the rice-cooker motorcycle helmets, preferring to put their trust in good luck, or maybe reincarnation. 